The desire of Titus Women is to invite women around the world to know Jesus as their Savior, Center, and Source. May God guide and encourage you through this message. In the second chapter of Paul's Philippian letter, we get one of the most remarkable portions of the New Testament. It is a hymn that is inserted in the middle of Paul's message. I'd like to talk about Paul's message today, but let me just read for you the hymn which he gives us here. Verse, beginning with verse 5 of chapter 2. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Indian Springs is known and has identified itself across the years as a holiness camp meeting. Sometimes I'm sure there are some of us who have been associated who have wanted to say Indian Springs Camp Meeting. But the founder said it was Indian Springs Holiness Camp Meeting. And I'm sure that the reason some of us at times have wanted to shorten the name is because there has always been a reproach about associated with that word holiness. When you begin to talk about entire sanctification, there are a lot of people in the Christian world who wince. I remember one of the great Christian leaders in America who called a friend of mine, a man who's preached on this platform, and said, now, wait a minute, you don't believe in that perfection bit, do you? And uh, my friend looked back at him and said, well, I find it in the New Testament, and if it's in the New Testament, I don't have any option." Now, we have used various terminology when we speak about what the essence of the message is that this camp meeting stands for. We've used that expression, holiness of heart, and entire sanctification. We have spoken about perfect love. Sometimes we refer to the fullness of the blessing, and sometimes we speak of the baptism of the Spirit or the Spirit-filled life. There are other terms that could be used, but these are simply reflective of the desire to express something that when we've used the language, we always feel that the language has been inadequate to express what we really feel and what we really believe. Over the years of my life, there have been two expressions that seem to have been more common than any others. One of them is the expression entire sanctification. 
The idea being that we are partially sanctified when we come to know Christ as Savior, but that there are dimensions in our personhood that have not been fully touched by the cleansing grace of the blood of Christ. And so there is lifted up that possibility that the blood of Christ can purge me, touch me wholly. Another expression which has been popular and common across the decades has been the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Here the emphasis is a little different. It is upon the person who does that sanctifying work. It is the Holy Spirit who is the only one who can make you or me holy. And we speak about the baptism and we relate it to Pentecost and to what happened to Jesus at the Jordan, that the Spirit descends upon us, and when He comes, we usually speak of the power that comes to us. You will remember that Jesus said that, you will receive power in Acts 1.8, after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you. But there is another aspect to what that baptism of the Holy Spirit does too, which Peter, who was at Pentecost, spoke about in chapter 15 in that great conference at Jerusalem. When he was looking back and he was speaking to the believers there about what had happened to them on the day of Pentecost, he said, And God, which knows the hearts, purified our hearts by faith. And it was that Holy Spirit, Peter was saying, that came and purified our hearts. And it is in that concept of purifying that the term baptism of the Holy Spirit and the expression entire sanctification meet. Now, there is no question but that we have problems with our terms. But that should not be too surprising to us. It is amazing how as time passes, words change their meanings. Because what meant a Republican not too many years ago does not mean one today. And you can move, it's almost as if there is a circle. And if you wait long enough, whatever the word meant today, it will mean the opposite, 180 degrees opposite, if you just wait long enough. And that's the reason that the Scripture never settles on a single expression. You're aware that we've talked in the 20th century a great deal about being born again, but there really is a very limited number of references in Scripture to being born again. If you take the ones in John 3 and the ones in Peter out, you're going to have trouble making any case for that to be a common expression for the entry into the Christian life. And so the Scripture uses many terms in hopes that when we've gotten familiar with a term, we'll find another term in the Bible that will fill out the concept that we have tended to diminish. So today I'd like to use another concept to speak about holiness of heart and what God wants to do in every believer. I would like to use the expression which Paul uses here of having the mind of Christ. Now, it ought to make my heart skip a beat the very discussion of the possibility that I could have within me the same mind that was in Christ Jesus. 
Now, evidently, Paul felt that that was true, that it is possible for a person like me to have inside me the same mind that was in Christ Jesus, because Paul was speaking to people remarkably like you and me when he wrote to those Philippian Christians. Now, when Paul used the expression, I believe he had some other passages and some other teachings in mind. I don't know where he learned about the life of Christ. I know that he and Peter had a good bit of time together on one occasion, and I wonder if Paul didn't milk him for all he was worth, and if Peter didn't feel an urge to share everything he could share with this new convert to the Christian faith. I'm confident that somewhere in their discussions, Peter gave Paul some information that led to his use of that expression in this passage. I can hear Peter saying, Paul, we saw him baptized down by the Jordan. We heard John the Baptist speak and identify him as the Christ. We had already known that John was a man from God, and whatever he said, we wanted to follow. And when he identified Jesus, we went and followed him. And so for the better part of three years, we lived with him. And after about three years, he looked at us and said, Who do you think I am? And we looked back and said, Lord, there's no question now. We know that you are the Christ of God. And he said, Yes, that's right. And now I go to Jerusalem, and there I will be crucified. And Peter said, Paul... That was beyond me. I heard him, but I couldn't believe it. The son of David, the king of Israel, the Lord of all, the very Son of God, be taken by mortals like you and me and nailed to a cross. And I looked at him and said, Master, that can never happen to you. One, it would be wrong. And two, there are at least 12 of us that will stand between you and anybody that will lay a finger on you. And then Peter said, But Paul, I didn't have a wrong estimate of who he was. But I had a complete misconception of who we were. Because when the chips were down, every last one of us deserted him. And they took him out and did exactly to him what he told us they were going to do. They nailed him to a cross and they crucified him. We had fled. Then Peter said, I should have anticipated it because the master, when I told him, never, Lord, he looked at me and said, Peter, you don't think the way I think. You don't have the same mind that I have. And because you don't have the mind that I have, you can't think the way I think. And it is significant the same Greek verb is used in Mark 8:33, 33, 
that is used in Philippians 2, 5. It's possible to be a believer and not have the mind of Christ. Now, it was true in the case of Peter, but they say, now that was before Pentecost, and after Pentecost, when you're converted, you get it all. Well, I notice that the Philippian letter was written after Pentecost. And it was written to people about whose faith there was no question. You read that Philippian letter. It's the tenderest of all his epistles. Because I think Paul had a deeper love affair with these Philippians than with anybody else. They had suffered together. And these Philippians, more than anybody else, had cared for him and sent him help when he needed it. He loved them and loved them deeply. And now he writes to them and says, I want you to have the same mind that Christ had and the same mind that he gave to his disciple Peter and he wants every believer to come to know. Now, uh, what is this mind of Christ as far as the essence of it? And what should it mean for a person like me? And what should it mean for a person like you? If you will look at that passage in Philippians, you will find that Paul explains it to us. It's amazing how long I simply was enamored with the hymn about Christ and never paid any attention to the specifics that Paul used to identify what he was talking about. But if you will look in verse 4, I think he rather clearly defines what entire sanctification means or the fullness of the Holy Spirit in an individual's life like yours and mine. Look at verse 4. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And what was that mind? It was a mind that brought Jesus to the place where he cared more about your well-being and about my well-being than he did his own. And I believe that Paul is saying to these Philippians, I want you to get to the place where you care more about somebody else than you do yourself. I want you to get to the place where you care more about some others than you do your own. And so he says, that's what Christ, that's the mind he had, and that's the mind that I want you to have. Now, this is... Uh, a stronger New Testament emphasis than we think. If you will carefully go through the New Testament looking for expressions of this, you will find that Paul said this on some other occasions. Let me cite for you one very specific and clear one. It's in the 10th chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians, and he is talking about how a believer is supposed to live in a world that is divided between Jews that don't know Christ 
and believe that you have to be a Jew and live Jewishly to be saved, and Gentiles who don't know Christ, and they've got their own religious ways of doing things. And he is talking about the way Gentiles sacrifice, and later he speaks about the way Jews, and he says, let me say this to you, verse 24. Do not let anyone seek his own, but let each one seek the other's well-being. I want you to come to the place, you Corinthians, where the mind that is in you causes you to be more concerned about somebody else than you are about yourself. Now, uh, if you will turn back to the preceding chapter, chapter 9, you will find that he addresses this same thing in a little different way. He has been talking about his desire to win Jews and also his desire to win non-Jews. Now, to reach a Jew... You had to go through a certain number of hooks because the Jews knew they had better religion than anybody else in the world. And they weren't going to listen to a pagan Gentile. So Paul said, when I'm among Jews, I'm the most Jewish Jew that the universe has to offer. Now he said, I know that many of those things are out of date and are not binding on me because we have stepped into the fulfillment of those symbols and we don't have to be bound by all those. But if it'll give me the opportunity to reach one more Jew for Christ, I will take all of the proscriptions and all of the bindings of the Jewish law upon me if I can reach one Jew for Christ. Now, if you understood what it meant to be a Jew, you'd know what that meant. But he said those that are not Jews, he said Gentiles, whatever it takes to reach those Gentiles, I'll change my lifestyle in order to reach them for Christ. And then he says, For though I am free, I am free from all. I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And so to the Jews I become as a Jew that I might win Jews, and to those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law, to those who are without law, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under the law toward Christ. But that is not the thing that determines my relationship unless it is a means of winning somebody to Christ, because my freedom and my rights have been laid on the altar of Christ. Now, that's strong language when you get to applying it down in personal living. But he says, why have I done all of this? He says, if you will look later in that same passage, now this I do, to the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak, I've become all things to all men 
that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. Now, uh, I've been asking God to explain to me what that means for Dennis Kinlaw. And I'd like to challenge you to ask him to explain what it means for you. Now, if you'll go back to that tenth chapter and come down to the end of that tenth chapter, you will find that Paul labors it again, underscores it, and does his best to strike it home. And when he speaks, he speaks in the first person. He is not saying this is an ideal for which we should strive. He is not saying it is an ideal for which he strives. But notice the language. The English is a little complicated and obscure, but if you will look at it, it is perfectly clear. You will notice he says, If anyone says to you, This was offered to idols, don't eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your conscience. Is it ever fair to let somebody else's conscience bind you? Listen to Paul. Conscience, I say, not your conscience, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? If I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I gave thanks? doesn't bother my conscience. Therefore, let me say, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, give no offense, either to a Jew or to a Greek or to the church of God, just as I. Now, here you will have Paul testifying. It is an astounding claim. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit but the profit of many that they may be saved. Imitate me just as I also am imitating and following Christ. Now, you know, is it ever fair for a person to testify to entire sanctification? I think Paul is doing exactly that at this point. He is saying, yes, friend, He's put his mind in me, and your well-being is more important to me than mine, and any sacrifice necessary for you to receive Christ, I am ready to make it the way Jesus was ready to make any sacrifice in order that we might receive Christ. Now, uh, I'm aware, and you've read it, and I've heard it across the years. People will quote for you Paul saying, I'm the chief of sinners. And we've quoted that to justify our own low states of grace. But I want to say Paul says, I've been delivered from the tyranny of my rights 
And I've been delivered from the tyranny of self-interest. Now, men who preached on this platform, and ladies too in the past and other generations, would say that is deliverance from the carnal mind. We don't use that language so much today, but do you know what they meant by the carnal mind? They meant self-interest that hinders our total surrender, total obedience to Christ. Now, if you will look at the passage in Philippians 2, the four verses that come before the hymn about Christ, and if you will look at the verses that follow it, I think you will be able to identify what I have identified. There are four characteristics of the mind of the believer that is not the mind of Christ. Because it is very clear that a believer can have a mind other than the mind of Christ. And so Paul speaks negatively so that then we can understand positively. The first reference is in that verse 3 of chapter 2 where he speaks and says, Let nothing be done... Now here again is where language needs to be dealt with very honestly. My translation here says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition. I never paid any attention to this until I was in my mid-sixties. And I thought, well, good, that won't bother me because I'm coming to the end of my career. The past is behind me and my future is going to be narrower and narrower. I no longer had any illusions about greatness. You know, I was coming to the end. And so I thought, I don't have to worry about that. But then I checked up what it means in the Greek. And what it means is striving to protect your own interests. And do you know one of the normal characteristics of old people? They may not be characterized by what the world calls selfish ambition, great dreams, But we have a genius for carefully striving to protect our own interests. The Greek word is eritheia. And if you check the first chapter, Paul says there are some that are preaching Christ out of envy and strife. And the word which he uses to describe them is eritheia. They're preaching Christ but there is erythea in their heart. Now, uh, you know, I tried to boil that down to something that I could grasp that would say it more clearly so I couldn't escape it. And do you know what I think it is? It is an attitude that is characterized by this reaction. You hit a new situation, and you look it over carefully, and you say, what's in it for me? And that's first. And that's controlling. Wouldn't it be interesting if you could get to a place where a new situation, the first thing that came to mind is, what are the possibilities here for Christ? And how can I be a part of what He wants to do here? 
how can I lay down all that I am so that in this moment he can do what he wants to do and be delivered from that what's in it for me? Now, the second expression that he uses in my text here is, uh, let nothing be done through conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than themselves. Now, uh, I looked at that and I thought, when you get as old as I am, your conceit's fairly well beaten out of you. Something about life that's sort of beat you on that score. You're no longer under some of those delusions that you were in your younger years. But I took a look at the Greek of that, and it has a different uh, connotation to it. The word has to do with appearances. Kenodoxia. It has to do with how you look. And so, I found myself saying, wait a minute, is he saying to me, Kinlaw, you never make a decision on the basis of how will I look. If Jesus had ever made a decision on the basis of how will I look, there would have never been a cross. And it's astounding how we are victimized by appearances. That's one of the battles that the founders of this camp meeting fought. Because the most of them were Methodists or Methodist preachers. And when this camp meeting was founded, there was a rising hostility in the Methodist Church to the message of John Wesley on Christian perfection and entire sanctification. And when the four men knelt out here and prayed over these grounds, one of the things they had to put behind them and not let control them was what he was going to do to their reputation. It didn't help at all in the Georgia conference for most of them. And do you know, the world hasn't changed a great deal. Harold Spann didn't get any brownie points when he went to Wesley Biblical Seminary to start that. And the Methodist Church can't put its approval on it. And I remember that was true of John Wesley Hughes at Asbury College. I would have never heard the gospel if John Wesley Hughes had not been willing to lay his reputation and his public appearances on the line. The mission board was not quite enthusiastic about me and said, you need some training in a liberal seminary if you're to go under the Methodist Church. And so I found myself sitting in the office of the dean of Duke Divinity School. And he said, what do you want? I said, I'd like to take one course in philosophy under Robert Cushman and Plato. He looked over at me and said, you're from Asbury, aren't you? I said, yes. Well, he said, I don't know whether we want to let you take one course at Duke or not. 
Now, let me remind you that I was a North Carolinian. My father and mother were. We were all Methodists. We had contributed to the conference regularly that helped finance Duke University. It was our school, our church school. He said, I don't know whether we want to let you take a course or not. He said, I know what you'll do. You'll work your pants off, make a halfway decent grade, and then you'll think you're Duke material. And you'll want to take a whole load, and you'll want a Duke degree. And I don't know whether we want to give Duke degrees to Asbury men. That was at the beginning of my ministry. The word gets rather clear, doesn't it? But you know something in which I rejoice? Asbury College has produced more Methodist missionaries than any institution on the face of the earth. And do you know something else? It has produced more Methodist clergymen, great stacks of which became district superintendents and a significant number Methodist bishops. It has produced more Methodist preachers than any Methodist college in this country. Now, if you want to serve the church, what do you do? You serve it whether the church wants you to serve it that way or not, by putting him first. But when you begin to play to the crowd, you begin to become sterilized and eternally fruitless. So Paul says to these dear Philippian Christians, don't live by appearances. Get to the place where you can follow the way of the cross, no matter what the cost. Because if it costs, there'll be a payoff. And if he takes you through a wilderness, it'll be to a promised land. And if he takes you through a grave, it'll be into a resurrection. Do you know the only way Jesus got into the resurrection? was through Calvary and a tomb. Now, the third characteristic is found after the hymn, and it is where he speaks in verse 14. I want you to do everything without grumbling. (laughs) I don't know about you, but for most of us, grumbling is our favorite indoor sport. And when we're outside, it's our favorite outdoor sport. But I dare you to go through the Scripture and notice what the Scripture says about grumbling. You go back to Numbers and read about the children of Israel. They're now in the wilderness living on manna that comes inexplicably and quail that comes on the wind, and water that comes out of places where there isn't any water. And they don't know where the next meal is coming from. They're not sure it's going to be there. They've got to trust Him. 
and they begin thinking about the leeks and garlic of Egypt, and they begin to grumble. And God speaks in judgment upon them. Because do you know what grumbling is if you've given your life to God and said, God, you can have it? Grumbling is saying he is a very mean rascal of a master. And he shouldn't do this to me. I deserve better than this. You see, that takes us to this matter of rights, doesn't it? And deserts. It's amazing to me how close the gospel gets if we're willing to listen to it. You see, I give him my life and he leads me into a path that takes me into a wilderness. And I say, Lord, I don't like wildernesses. And so I complain. It's not the wilderness I'm complaining about, it's he. You know, I've come to believe that's one of the marks of the sanctified life that he delivers you from grumbling. I sat at Joe Lucy's table yesterday, or was it the day before? There were a group of us who sat there, and Roy down here was sitting there. I had noticed him every day taking the offering, and I noticed one eye was a little different. So I asked him about it, and he said, well, I was driving a nail, and the nail flew up and went in my eye, and I lost it. He said, I don't have any complaints. He said, God's been so good to me, it was almost as if he were more joyous because he'd lost it. I want to tell you, that is the mind of Christ. And I walked away saying, thank you, Lord, for letting me meet somebody who knows what Indian Springs camp meeting is about. Now, Roy, forgive me. (laughs) Forgive me for labeling you. But I, it's a joy to meet somebody. The little lady who influenced me profoundly, who was losing her sight, and I went to visit her. And she looked at me and said, uh, she was one of the greatest influence on me in terms of the holiness message. And she said to me, you came to comfort me, didn't you? And I froze and realized I was guilty. And I looked back and said, yes. You're losing your eyesight. And she looked back at me and said, Dennis, you wouldn't deprive me of the privilege of learning the lessons he wants to teach me in the dark that I can never learn in the light, would you? And she got her sight back. And then she lost it completely and she walked into total blindness, rejoicing in the Lord. Paul says, I want you to have the mind of Christ. I asked Peter about that, and he said in the three and a half years he was with him, he never heard him complain or grumble. Now the fourth one is where he speaks and says, I want this mind to be in you, and if it is, 
This translation says there won't be any disputing. Another translation says there won't be any arguing. Now, I wrestled with that a little bit because there are some people who think that Jesus argued with his Father in Gethsemane. But if you read that passage carefully, you will find there was never any question in Jesus' mind as to what he was going to do. There was a question as to whether it was right, but there was no question as to what he was going to do. And he said, Father, I don't like this. God's will for you will be something on occasion that you don't like. But it was what Jesus didn't like that gave to us salvation. Jesus said, Father, if it's possible, I'd like to think there's some other way. And his father said, No, son. And I think Jesus was saying, Father, give me a little time to get acclimated to it. And when he arose from his knees the third time, he was embracing it. Now, I believe there are times when God will put you in spots where you'll need a little acclimation too when you see what it's going to cost you to follow Christ. And do you know one of the reasons you need a little time is so you can carefully look through what it's going to cost you if you don't follow Christ. And when you see clearly what it'll cost if you don't follow Him, you'll find yourself saying, It's all right, Lord. And there's no yes but in your heart, and you're not arguing or disputing with Him. You're saying, This hurts, but if this is the way, let's go. And then do you know what you'll find? Paul said, then you will be blameless. Now, just for those of you who are interested in biblical interpretation, that word blameless is the New Testament counterpart to the Old Testament word for perfect. It is the New Testament term for what God used with Abraham when he said, walk before me and be thou perfect. Now, you and I aren't going to have perfection of conduct. We're not going to have perfection of thinking. We're not going to have perfection. We're fallen creatures, but you know what we can have? Through His grace and through the anointing fullness of the Holy Spirit, we can have a blameless motive. We can say, Lord, if it kills me, I want Your will. And do you know what we will find? When we come to that, His will will be the opening into all that we ever needed, wanted, desired. Now you say, uh, can anybody live like that? Well, I can't close without making Paul testify again. Look at verse 10 of chapter 4. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. You used to help me, and then you stopped, and now you started again. I want to thank you 
for helping me with my ministry. Though you surely did care, but you lacked an opportunity to do it. Not that I speak in regard to need. For friends, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I remember he's sitting in a prison, and he's shackled to a Roman guard. And he says, I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, put down, and I know how to abound, be exalted. Everywhere and in all things I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. In fact, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Do you know what I think the all things are that he can do? He can live without grumbling. And he can live without that yes but. And he can take whatever God gives and say, in it all I give thanks. I am sufficient through his grace for his will for me. Now, uh, that's very beautiful truth to me now. You say, does anybody other than an Apostle Paul ever get there? Well, not a great many. But, listen to this in chapter 2. He says, I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I don't have anyone who's minded, here we get the term, who's minded the same way, who will sincerely care for your estate. For all seek their own. Demas has forsaken me because he got interested in Demas. But Timothy has stood his ground. All seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that is a son with his father. He served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once, as soon as I see how it goes with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also shall come shortly. Isn't it interesting? Paul says, I've got one fellow who's found this grace, and his name's Timothy. And do you know something? If Timothy can get there, I can get there. I may not be a Paul. I certainly am not a Jesus. But I can get there if Timothy did, and do you know why? Because Timothy got there because of what Jesus had done for him, not because of who he was. And if one person can get there, and it's by grace, did you know every believer can get there? And do you know what happens when they do? Their lives begin to be fruitful. 
you believe He loves you enough that it's safe for you to take your hands off your life? Totally take your hands off your life? Do you believe He's powerful enough that if you totally take your hands off your life, He can save it? Do you believe He's smart enough that it's safe to trust Him? To let Him lead you? You see, if you really believe that, that He's perfect love, and He's all power, and He's wisdom itself, what folly it would be for me to keep a finger on my life. I ought to say, Lord, take them off so you can do your glorious thing in a mortal like me. If you want to learn more about Titus Women, visit us online at tituswomen.org.